So our psalm today is a psalm of ascent, and that's like a marching to Zion anthem. There's a, a handful of them. And it's funny to me um, that when you start to have the history that Israel has and these aims towards Zion in your blood like Israel did, every song kind of has that gravitas. Um, last week, I got to go to a concert in Durham for Mavis Staples, who's he's like my favorite. She's the best, and she performed in Durham. And she, of course, um, with her sisters and her brother and her dad, Pops, was part of the Staples Singers. And they um, sang at the intersection of church music and music for the civil rights in the 60s and 70s. And kind of, if that was a Venn diagram, in the middle of that Venn diagram is liberation, like good news to the poor, release to the prisoners, sight to the blind, liberation to the oppressed, forgiveness of debt. The great part is that when this is your sound, like it is for Mavis Staples, kind of everything starts to sound that important. Like she could sing the phone book and it would sound like a liberation anthem, right? You know, <laughs> or, or like the words of an Old Testament prophet. And so she, like Marcus, this morning sang a talking head song and I thought it was hers, and then I thought it was from a minor prophet, you know? Uh, but, but it was actually just David Byrne being David Byrne. So um, I want to invite Justin to come up and read our Psalm 32. And this is actually from uh, the message paraphrase, which I don't normally do for our main reading, but it was too good to not. Psalm 132. Oh God, remember David. Remember all his troubles, and remember how he promised God, made a vow to the strong God of Jacob, I'm not going home, and I'm not going to bed. I'm not going to sleep, not even take time to rest, until I find a home for God, a house for the strong God of Jacob. Remember how we got the news in Ephrathah, learned all about it at Ja'ar Meadows. We shouted, let's go to the shrine dedication, let's worship at God's own footstool. Up, God, enjoy your new place of quiet repose, you and your mighty covenant ark. Get your priests all dressed up in justice. Prompt your worshipers to sing this prayer. Honor your servant David. Don't disdain your anointed one. God gave David his word. He won't back out on this promise. One of your sons I will set on your throne. If your sons stay true to my covenant and learn to live the way I teach them, their sons will continue the line always a son to sit on your throne. Yes, I, God, chose Zion, the place I wanted for my shrine. This will always be my home. This is what I want, and I'm here for good. I'll shower blessings on the pilgrims who come here and give supper to those who arrive hungry. I'll dress my priests in salvation clothes. The holy people will sing their hearts out. Oh, I'll make the place radiant for David. I'll fill it with light for my anointed. I'll dress his enemies in dirty rags but I'll make his crown sparkle with splendor. This is the word of God for the people of God. So this soundtrack is crafted for Israel's pilgriming to and from Jerusalem. These psalms, these ascent psalms, are ascent psalms exactly because you always go up to Jerusalem. Zion is always a climb. Pursuing the place where God hangs out, or at least the place where God has been, should always leave you a little breathless, like a good hike. It should make your 
pulse race just a little bit. So this, the psalmist tells a story about God's home. God in a place. This is a pretty bold thing to believe. Like last Sunday, we started out by asking the question to you all, what is easier to believe or to imagine that God is present everywhere or that God is present here in this place? To believe that God has an address, such and such, such and such, Zion Avenue, whatever, is, is a pretty bold move. It's a, it's a big can of worms open, and it's precisely this can of worms that David and Israel live and move and have their being. It's their whole story. It's the story of God and God's people that we inherit and that we're grafted into, which God has chosen to be our neighbor. That's a, that's a simple phrase with a lot to unpack. God has chosen to be our neighbor. To love our neighbor then as ourselves is then first and foremost about encountering the God who encounters us every day. Like the way you encounter your neighbor, going to the mailbox, walking your dog, going out to your car. God is our neighbor. And God calls us to God's self, to neighborliness, to union, to intimacy, to love. That's what this pilgrimage to this place of God's presence is all about for God's people. That's why Jerusalem. That's why this place, this place, Jerusalem, Zion, this mountain that launched a hundred psalms. Psalmist recalls the whole history, kind of reminds but doesn't tell all the details, and I won't tell all the details either, but you can go to the you can go to Genesis and Exodus and, and the first five books of the Bible and get this story, this history of God promising to be near us. First in the ark, and this is, every time I think of the ark, I think of Indiana Jones, so try, try to hold it. Now that I mention it, you're especially thinking about it, right? Try not to think about Indiana Jones when you think about the ark, unless it's helpful, and then do, please. But the ark, for a refresher, is a special box. It's crafted beautifully to depict heaven. Again, scandalous that the God of the universe might be at all fit for this like four by two by two box of acacia wood covered with gold, regardless of how ornate it was decorated. As God met with Moses, there were construction instructions. Moses was given blueprints. And there would be this solid gold lid on this box with two uh, cherub angels. This was called the mercy seat. There was space in between this box, uh, the, those angels on the top of this box. This box was carried into battle. This box was carried into exile. This box was carried into conquest. This box was even once stolen from Israel when they were defeated. This box would live among God's people. There would be special rules for encounter. One of, there's this one time where David's men were carrying the box, and some scholars, based on the materials and the size, estimate that this you know, could be between like a 400-pound box or like a six or 800-pound box. And so uh, they're, they're you know, very off-road, and they're carrying it, and it starts to tip, and 
someone reaches out to grab the box, and that's a big no-no, and the box carrying instructions, right? Uh, all of this set up to bolster and to foster respect and, and a specialness, a set-apartness, a holiness to this place where God dwells amongst God's people. One scholar notes, the history of this ark was for the Hebrews a kind of theological handbook. It provided an account of the presence of God amongst God's people, something they could see, something they could hear, something in some cases they could touch. Wouldn't that kind of be nice to have those kind of literal handles around God in our midst? It's a way that they could know that they were near God. It took some of the guesswork out. And more importantly, it let them know that God was near to them. So many of our prayers, so many of the psalmist's prayers are asking, where are you, God? Wake up, God. Listen to me, God. Are you near? I need you. The, the ark was a little bit of an answer to that. The ark was also a little bit of a cautionary tale. Its history reminds us of the dangers of literally boxing God in or of marching with God as kind of a mascot or a talisman. It's a great example of how God being located in a place can be a source in sight of God's particular presence, but it can also be a source in sight of pride or manipulation or hubris or idolatry. It reminds us that encountering God has to happen on God's terms, not ours. That any home for God is in some way inadequate to God's free and expansive life. The first part of the psalm today that Justin read recalls David's desire to build God a home. It asks God to arise, get up, go to an appropriate place that we can meet you. Well, I think some of this desire is pure and out of love for God. I wonder a little bit if it isn't driven by a little bit of guilt from David and an imagination of someone who lives in a palace and is kind of freaked out by the fact that he might have a nicer house than God. So one answer is to move out of the palace. The other is just to build God a really nice house, you know. Um, there are times when it seems like David kind of inches up to the mistake of doing for God rather than being with God. The kind of in our story at Oak Church, in learning how to be in this place amongst these neighbors with God as our first and foremost neighbor, one of the key things that we're learning is how much time and how much effort it takes to be with people rather than to just do things for people, even really good things, or to be for people, to advocate for them. It's so key that before God sets us out to do great things for the kingdom or vital things for others, that our chief desire is that we must enjoy God and spend time with God. We must make time to be with God that we're filled with God's word, that we make room for God to speak with our silence, that we're reclaimed as beloved daughters and sons of God who is, whose standing is sealed before we've done anything or despite of anything that we've already done. That's the bedrock of faith and action, faith and action. And that thoughts and prayers, faith and action, right? Jesus tells the same story um, in his encounter with a pair of sisters. And these sisters uh, always kind of get a bad name, Mary and Martha, right? Uh, don't, be such a, don't be such a Martha, right? No one ever says, don't be such a Mary, right? 
unless you're a Martha and you think that constantly. Without Martha, seemingly nothing ever gets done. The table isn't set, the food's not ready, kids aren't looked after. But Mary is keyed into this insight that when God and Jesus is present amongst us, we do well to listen up and to set down whatever else we're tending to. Set down your phone. Jesus is present, right? Like a lot of families, I think we'd probably be at our best to make space for and to combine the best attributes of all the siblings. We have like Mary's insight to pay attention to God and Martha's willingness to, to serve others, that we'd give ourselves over to God so that we might be given over to the work of loving God's people with, in kind of concrete and real ways. But for all the beauty that the ark and the tabernacle um, have, they're always not enough. That space for God is always not enough. It's always too little, but God chooses to make a home nonetheless. Ark, tabernacle, temple are important because they center our worship. The logic relies on the fact that we are a placed people, people that are shaped by a place and that help shape our place. This should all be really encouraging to us. If you live in a place that you don't think is enough to bring other people in, into it, it's enough. It's plenty. If you live a life that you don't think has enough or is enough room or you don't know enough to bring people into this life, you have enough. It's plenty. God will fill that space. God will expand your bandwidth and make room in your life. These, these things, though, ark and tabernacle and temple, they lay some of the crucial imaginative groundwork for our expectations that God can actually be with us. God can fill space, can, can be present. By the time John's gospel announces the good news of the incarnation, I think that is like sufficiently good news. Like way before Jesus took on the cross, which is also part of the good news, the incarnation is pretty darn good news because it means that God is with us. Emmanuel is present. John's good news of the incarnation is that the word became flesh and blood and tabernacled among us. The real tabernacle came. God's word, the same word that hovered over the waters of creation, the same word that exists specifically and captivatingly between the cherubim on the mercy seat, now has become incarnate. If you know Spanish, that's like God con carne like God with flesh, right? The skin of the meeting tent has now become the brown Middle Eastern skin of Jesus of Nazareth. It's amazing. That's a miracle. That's good news. God with us. God in a place. God in, in this place. God, our neighbor, showing us and making it possible to be good neighbors. If you want to be a good neighbor, you know God who is your primary neighbor. The psalm then shifts in language. The first part is all about what David had promised and wanted to do for God. The second part shifts to David speaking, um, from David speaking to God speaking. And all the action verbs start to light up. God will set David's offspring on God's throne. This is messianic language. 
God will teach them. God will choose. God has chosen Zion as a place to stay for good. God will shower blessings on those who come to be with God. God will fill up the hungry from their journey. God will dress the priests in salvation clothes. And later, it says, God will dress David's enemies in rags. God will make the place radiant. God will fill it with light. God will make David's crown shine. If we were ever mistaken about the weight of our action versus God's action to carve out space for God, our desire to drop a map pin on God's present action, God does things. God does all the things in the end of this psalm. God is the one making promises. And the chief promise of God is that God would send a king and establish a kingdom. Not in some far off realm, but on earth as it is in heaven. That's why we pray that. That's Jesus' prayer for us. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, in a place. And he says, I'm going to teach you things that this, this king might know things from God, that God is knowable, and this, the royal people, First uh, Peter says, we're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation belonging to our God. This royal people, people who know the king, will know things about God and that we should grow in our knowledge and grow in our holiness by being near to God in our places. We come to see that being at home with God is a place of rest. I think that's an emphasis for this psalm. It says this place is, is where God rests, where God's presence rests. He even has this detail about, about uh, this place, about Zion being God's footstool. What a great image. God in a recliner putting his footstool in a place, right? Um, that's a, that's a, that God's throne might have a footstool and it might be where we meet God. Whereas David says that he won't rest until he finds a home for God, I think that's hilarious. God must be thinking, like, that's adorable, David, that you won't rest until I find a place for you to rest, right? God is all rest in this place. God is all rest, rest all the way down. G.K. Beale uh, is a scholar around, around temple uh, and creation. He reminds us that rest is so central to the ark and the tabernacle and the temple in, in Jerusalem because it's a microcosm. It's a little world that signifies and contains God's whole big world of the seventh day, that very good rest. God made and made and made. God called good, 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 and then God rested. It was very good. He says, just as God rested on the seventh day from God's work of creation, so when the creation of the tabernacle and especially the temple are finished, God takes up a resting place therein. God is just resting, hanging out in a place that we can access. In case the implications aren't that clear, when God rests in a place with us, when God rests in a place among us, the original beauty and goodness of the whole creation is present, even in the midst of brokenness and corruption and sin and death and all these things that have crept into God's good creation. Even in this space, God's macrocosm, God's great big world, God's very good world, God's own presence is with us. I think also this, this works this way with time, too. Like even in this in-between time, we experience the end time, the God's garden city presence among us. When Revelation tells us that we'll be God's people and God will be 
our God. God will be our all in all. This macrocosm is this past and future God time is all in this holy here now. It's wild stuff. It's metaphysical stuff that is happening here. God's holy here now. I've been reading back through, and, and maybe our, uh, our first-year Div students can resonate, I've been reading back through St. Augustine's Confessions, and St. Augustine has like the best intro to anything. And Confessions isn't, uh, there is actually a lot of him confessing bad things that he's done, mostly related to neighbors' pairs and other things. Um, but it's also his confession of, of who God is and how God has met, met him. And this line, uh, is pretty famous, and you may have heard it. He says, you have formed us for yourself. He's talking to God. And our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Maybe you're coming here today, and that really resonates with you. You've come here restless. You've come here physically wrestling children. I can identify with that, right? So many of us uh, need this thought that our hearts are restless, but rest is possible, and God brings it to us. This, rest, this restlessness can manifest for us in all different ways. We, we could poll um, anonymously, maybe, about how you manifest restlessness. Maybe it's comparison to other people and, and displeasure with, with who you are or what you have. Maybe it's fear. Maybe it's anxiety. Maybe it, this restlessness makes us suspicious. Maybe it makes us ungracious. Maybe it prevents us from being thankful or from being generous. Maybe restlessness just makes us distracted or highly distractible. Maybe it causes us to self-medicate in all sorts of ways. But central to why place, why this place, is important to God is because it gives God a place to rest. And it gives us a place to find God for our own rest. If we can count on God being there, we can count on God giving us rest. That's why Jesus in the Gospels is traveling from town to town. And in each place, he's issuing the invitation, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. This is a central thing to, to what Jesus is doing and inviting us into in this kingdom that Jesus is inaugurating. So it's in this place and not before it that God, this place of the temple and tabernacle and Ark of the Covenant, that God turns our whole idea of presence and rest inside out. Because some of you heard when I invited you into the rest of God as, as like a, a, an invitation into like not doing anything or some version of like selfishness, and that's actually not what's going on here. Rest in God doesn't mean that it just becomes about us in God or about me in God any more than God choosing to be located in a place or choosing Israel closes down God's movement or God's election of places and people. It actually means that being at home with God and resting in God's love becomes like the narrow end of the wedge pointing out to the rest of the world, to, to people who also need God's rest to places where God longs to dwell. It's important to us in what we're doing here. Like we're, I'm doing a lot of, of um, 
thinking back and, and reminiscing and evaluating uh, all, the, all the, the ways that God has worked in us here over these last five years during this anniversary month. I think this is all important for us here because when we started to imagine being a church community here, abiding with God in this place, this actual church building was immediately an important part of it. A lot of church plants start in someone's living room, and that's not a bad way to start, and then you start to grow numerically, or you need places to eat, or places to watch kids, or just more room to meet. But for us, this place was kind of baked into what the church was going to be. We had a place, and we had neighbors before we had anything, before we knew anything. We kind of had to reverse engineer the fellowship to fill the form, right? I must admit, for the first two or so years of this conversation, and still some conversations that I have now, went mostly kind of like, yeah, we're at that church building on the corner that you drive by on the way to that thing. Or, oh, you've lived in the neighborhood for 25 years. Have you ever been in that church? No, I'd never go in that church. Still won't, right? And so this, or like, Oh, which church is that? Is it Church A or Church B? Oh, it's by the Y or it's by the diner, you know? Um, in the minds of many of our neighbors and maybe even some of our minds, this church building was kind of maybe even a barrier. Like those doors were, were something that was not an invitation to come in, not an invitation to receive rest. Maybe it signaled um, that, the, that rest could not be found here or you, you came with baggage or connotations of like toxicity or trauma, it's some things that we can't control even. And so there was a lot of reclamatory work and a lot of PR work <laughs> uh, in, in the early days in this place, that this could be a good place, that this has been a good place, that God's spirit rests here um, and gives us rest here. But, but part, of, part of reconfiguring that or asking God to, to reconfigure that, to renew that, to transfigure that, is to start to imagine, what if this building, which is old, which is traditional, sometimes I tell people, um, especially church people and Baptist church people, that if you had a Baptist catalog from years ago, this was the red version. You know, there's like a blue version and a green version. This is the red version. And when I say traditional, also, like, this might not be your tradition <laughs> and might not be a tradition that you really admire or want much to do with. But what if this old traditional place with all these windows, with all these names and dates and some names that are Durham names uh, that you recognize on streets or on building plaques and, and such, what if this place can be a place of God's presence? What if it always has been? What if it especially is when our friends from Kanu meet here or Gospel Baptist meet here? Um, what if this is a place of God's presence set apart, invisible, visible, and visible, reliable and common? What if this place could be for the sake of others, a place to meet God, a place for the sake of others? Rather than being the only place of God's presence in the neighborhood, what if this, what if this could be like, not a bottling up of the powerful God of creation, but a place, a special place to meet God so that we could recognize God here and then recognize where God is already at work ahead of us out there. That, that we'd go from this table 
in that we would have eyes and ears and hearts and minds to see God at all the other tables out in our world. Tables uh, with people that are like us, um, people in the same station as us, we're families with other families, but also tables, uh, strange tables that we would normally not approach. Like, and it, it's funny how your childhood perpetuates itself in different ways as an adult. Like when you were a kid, you would, you would scan the lunchroom looking for a table that you thought you could fit in at um, or uh, avoid uh, if, if necessary. And we do the same thing as adults. But what if this place could, and, and the weekly practice of potluck and of gathering around the Lord's table together could, could disrupt that and disturb that and, and create an ability to recognize and, and a, a bravery and a courage and a facility in us to be able to approach those tables and to see God present there. What if our experience of rest here expands our experience of resting God in other places? At home or at work or with our kids or in the midst of stress or sorrow or injustice or fear? What if our experience of God's attentive and caring presence here where we're all together, where we're all quiet sometimes and where we're all singing, where we're all around the table, where we're all operating in a spirit of trust and openness to the God who speaks and who heals, what if that opens us up to God's presence in places which are harder to see and harder to expect that to happen? We're, we're kind of being trained in this. What if the crumbs and the drips, if you come up here, you can see all these crumbs and drips, and some are not us, I promise. Some are actually anointing oil from canoe, which is also beautiful. What if these crumbs and drips from the broken body and poured out blood of Jesus, what if the drips of that anointing oil signalizing, uh, uh, signifying uh, God's calling and sending, what if, what if that can transfigure into all the crumbs and drips in our lives throughout the week? Like the crumbs and drips from our careless roommates or our, or our small roommates, a.k.a. children, or our spouses or our friends, or um, on the side of the road that people carelessly throw stuff out. What if, what if we can have our imaginations transfigured to see God working in, that, in the midst of those broken things and broken places? where these remnants are, Christ is and already has been? What if our experience of safety and security in this place with others who are bound up in faith, not necessarily experts in faith, there's not a lot of experts in faith here, but definitely participants, people who are on the road with God, what if that becomes the operating mode for us when we leave here and we're not around people who share some of those feelings or convictions, where we don't feel nearly as safe or at home, where that familiar, familiarity and comfort we're given by God's spirit um, is a little less noticeable. But we need God's spirit to, to, to be stronger and more true than any of the insecurity or any of the uncertainty of our life in the world. What if we can build into that here? My friend, uh, Jen Kraft, it's a professor who focuses a lot on uh, faith and place. She says that our sense of mission in all the particular places of the world results from our first belonging in this particular place that God puts us. In a community in which ties are not easily broken and service is not easily forgotten. 
that's how we're building into this place and building into each other in this place and being built by God. God uses places like these, a place like this, to show up to us so that we'll have eyes and ears and minds and hearts to recognize God showing up everywhere else. This means that we're not, that it's not just okay to like commit to or be tied to or limited to a particular place or particular people. That's what God actually does. This unlimited, omni-everything God chooses to tie God's self to a place and a people. That, that you can have these imposed limits. In some sense, that's exactly what we're calling all of us to do and be here, to be tied to each other. It's, a, it's a, a certain form of freedom to be bound to each other and bound to a place, and God shows us that. That means that we can commit to be here, that we can dig in, that we can connect to the lives right in front of us, and that's intimidating because like, to use a, you can, you can tell my dad, I use all these kid metaphors, right? Like, if, it often feels like we're Lego blocks with you know, only a certain amount of free pegs. Like you, you, you might have used six of the eight pegs and you only have two pegs and that's really threatening so you just, you wait and you wait and you wait and you don't commit and you don't want anything on those spare pegs because you don't know what's gonna come around and it doesn't feel like there's enough room. But what if you fill those limited pegs on the Lego of your life with the people and the, and the pieces that are right here? It, that's what those places are, are for. That's, what, that's the room that God is going to make in your life and continue to expand. God will actually build something significant, something that is greater than the sum of our parts here. That's what God has been doing for those five years. I really believe that. It might be something that takes a lot of time, and it might not always be, like, it might not always look or feel like much of a restful place, or it might not actually look or feel like what you thought it was going to look like. It kind of drives me nuts that kids these days have Lego sets that actually have instructions. That's not how we did Legos when I was a kid. You just start building. You just start putting things on the pegs and see what you get from there, maybe with a, a, a vague idea of what you're going to build. And I think that's a little bit about what, that's God's wisdom in God's building. It's that we might not know what the blueprint is, or we might not know what the final result is, but we have room to build. Ephesians puts it like this, and this is where we'll close today. This is, this is such a cool uh, image because Ephesians uses all these mixed metaphors. There's a body, there's uh, um, a household, and then there's actually a house. So uh, chapter 2 says, when Jesus came, he announced good news of peace to you who are far away from God and to those who are near. Both have access to the Father through Christ by the one Spirit. So now you're no longer strangers or aliens, but rather you're fellow citizens with God's people, and you belong to God's household. So as God's household, you are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. This is a whole building. It's joined together in him, in Jesus and it grows into a temple, a tabernacle, a place of God's presence that is dedicated to the Lord. And Christ is building you into a place where God lives by God's spirit. Will you all pray with me?
God, help us be at home with you in a place of peace, in a place of rest, a place that you've made for us, whether we've been far off or whether we started a little closer. We have access to you through Jesus, through the deconstruction and reconstruction work of tearing down dividing walls of hostility and building us up into a place where God lives through the Spirit. Thanks for the bricks in this room. Thanks for the the space we have to connect with other people as you continue to build. Let us be inspired by Jesus who was a stumbling block, didn't look like there was a place for him, and he became the chief capstone, the most important part of the whole building. If anyone in here feels that way, that you don't have a spot, that you don't have a place, that you don't know where to start, give them courage, give them assurance, give them peace and rest. Thanks for this place and all the history of faithfulness here. Lord, join us to that faithfulness. Thanks for this place. And join us um, in repentance for for the ways that uh, uh, folks who have been here, the way that we have at times been unfaithful and not followed you, not listened to you, not joined with you in this world, that we've ignored the cries of the poor, that we haven't made space. Thanks for what you've done, what you're doing, and what you will do. We pray all this in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.